0: Thank you. Welcome to the Humans of Hospitality podcast. I know so many of you listening to this show love your local bar, your local restaurant, maybe your local hotel, and have so many fond memories of time in hospitality businesses. This is the podcast where we get to chat to the human beings behind the scenes of that industry. Maybe the chefs or the bakers or the coffee roasters or the gin distillers or the craft brewers or the entrepreneurs, but all doing an amazing job of making sure the hospitality stays interesting and the big, dull, formulaic brands do not take over our high street. Please enjoy the show. In this week's episode, I'm hugely excited to get to sit down with Gareth Banner, who's the MD of The Ned in London, part of the Soho House. And Siddele Group. Now, I saw Gareth chat about a year ago at a caterer show, and him and the Ned blew my mind, and I knew he was someone that I had to one day get on the podcast that didn't even exist at that time. So he's in fact part of the inspiration for this very podcast you're listening to. Now there has never ever been anything quite like the Ned in this country before. Created from the former headquarters of the Midland HSBC Bank in the heart of the city of London. The grade one listed building is now home to and I'll take a deep breath. 10 restaurants, 250 bedrooms, six private event spaces, a spa, a gym and a club with well over 3,000 members. In any given week, 30,000 meals are served on the ground floor alone, and that does not include the thousands of other glasses of wines and coffees that people pop in for, or the meals that are served in the event spaces, which must also clock up into the thousands every single week. As its MD, Gareth says modestly, for a single address, there are a lot of moving parts. Now, just three years ago, when he was looking through the dust and the scaffolding at what was the final phase of five years of renovation, he knew it was going to be special. And as you'll hear, his career, which takes in stints with global brands, the Marriott, as well as iconic boutique hotel, the Hempel, is also impressive. It went some way to prepare him for this amazing project. But actually, as you'll hear, the biggest learning has happened since the Ned opened its doors to the public two years ago. This is an incredible space, uh, an incredible adventure, an incredible story. And I very much hope you enjoy Gareth's and the Ned's mind-blowing episode. Gareth, thank you so much for sparing the time to come onto the, uh, onto the podcast. Much appreciated. Pleasure. So uh, I'm in the city of London. Quite often I do these podcasts and I'm in the middle of the country somewhere introducing a farmer and you can hear mooing cows in the background, but I'm right in the heart of the city. Can you just explain where we are on planet Earth, please?
1: Yeah, um, we are located uh, on Poultry. Um, Poultry takes its name from what was once the Poultry Markets, um, bang in the middle of the city of London, opposite the Bank of England. um, And we are occupying what was formerly the the East Midland Bank um, headquarters, which became Midland Bank headquarters, which became HSBC. Um, And we got our hands on this amazing building, uh, grade one listed, uh, Edwin Lutchen's designed property uh, back in uh, about 10 years ago and have spent... Um, five or six years renovating it, and we've been uh, we've been open just over two years now. So, uh, yeah, thanks for coming to see us. No, it's amazing. And um, so we're in the what was this the vaults down here? We sort of came underground a
0: little bit, I think.
1: Yeah. It? So we're we're currently sitting um, on what we refer today as basement level one, and, and basement level one was exactly as you say, it was where a lot of the um, safety deposit vaults were kept. There are 17 vaults in total on the lower three floors of this building. Um, all of which have been repurposed for one reason or another. And actually the room we're sitting in, we call it the snug today, but actually this was a private um, safety deposit room where people who needed to make larger or more private, have a private area for deposits would be able to come um, with armed security actually and be able to deposit whatever it was that they needed to deposit. And then would be escorted from here back into the vault, which is adjacent to us, where they would then um, you know, lock their lock their possessions Amazing. away for safekeeping. So this this one room would have been for one person, would it? The we're sat in now. Or? So actually, um, yes, it was, and this was a larger room. And 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 the rooms to the left, we actually call these the kennels. Um, it was they were nicknamed by the bank the kennels because they look a bit like dog kennels, I guess. And and there are six individual private rooms along along this long corridor here, where people would be uh, able to have some more privacy. Yeah, you get quite a few diamonds in here, can you? It's uh, it's a yeah, pretty. I don't I guess know what in, it's
0: probably four, three or four meter square. So uh, yeah, okay, interesting. Um, really looking forward to coming into uh, the, the NED as is now and the details of running it because this is hospitality on a, on a super grand scale. So I'm excited to do that. But I want to start a bit further back, if that's okay, and just learn a little bit about how you got into hospitality. So what's what was the trigger?
1: What was your first memories of uh, of an interest in this sector? You know, I'm not going to be one of these guys that say it was an accident, but it it wasn't a deliberate plan either. Um, I guess it, I, I, sometimes you don't realise what you're calling is um, until it sort of smacks you right between the eyeballs. And, and for me, you know, I was fortunate enough to um, spend time visiting restaurants and hotels growing up, you know, for holiday uh, purposes, really with, with family and was always curious about sort of hotels and, and would always sort of sit there as a child and observing what was going on. And and it was, it was a curiosity more than anything else. Um, And, and when I was waiting for my A-level results, um, I you know have a long summer after my exams. I decided to take a job to earn a bit of pocket money as it were, um, uh, working in a kitchen of a, of a, quite, a quite reasonable pub, um, but it was only a pub and um, uh, I was I think three months in that job and it was a, it was a heat wave that summer and it was a, a pub kitchen did not have all the mod cons that you might find in a place like this today and it was a hundred plus degrees almost every day during service. And long days, and and I remember thinking I love this, and I was waiting for my level results, and, and was planning to go off and read, you know, business and Spanish and other things at, at uh, one of the universities um, that, that specialise in all that. And and I remember thinking I'm not sure I've picked the right course here. Um, and as it happened, I didn't get the grades um, that I needed, and I thought, oh, what am I going to do? And I went to see my director of sixth form who said to me, what have you been doing all summer? And I said, I've been working in this restaurant. It's been brilliant. He said, well, have you thought about a career in catering? And there are degrees actually that, you know, can sort of help underpin that. Um, And the rest is history. So I went off and, and, you know, I studied um, and that then led to a placement. I went off to the United States um, where I, I, I did 12 months working in a big hotel and, you know, suddenly realized that this really was what I wanted to do. And so I suppose hotels were my first love, although I have run restaurants as well. Um, you know, I, I, I just find the whole thing fascinating and have never really looked back. So I'm, I'm, I'm really a one-trip pony now. Amazing. Uh, you have got to be a certain sucker for punishment, I think, to be
0: in a, in a hot pub kitchen and go, yes, this is the life for me. But like you say, it's a, it's a calling. Hospitality is a funny business for that, I think, isn't it? There's definitely easier ways to make a living, but it's something really good fun about it.
1: I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and, and if, yeah, exactly as you say, you know, it is a funny old business and it's not for everybody for sure. And, and actually, you know, whilst, whilst there are easier industries, um, you know, I, I actually talk about that when I, when I hire people here at the net, I say, you know, there are easier industries and there are definitely easier jobs than working here um, and you have to really want to do it. And if, and if you, if you're not hundred percent in it, it's, it's just not going to work out because yeah. we, we ask a lot of you and, and uh, I think it's, it's, it's a rare breed of individual, actually, that can, that can cut it um, mm-hmm. at, at sort of the very sharp end of, you know, what is high volume, high quality. Um, and, and, and I think there is a lack of uh, awareness, really, of what it takes to, to, to operate at this level. Um, and I'm very lucky that I've got a thousand people around me um, who do a brilliant job and allow me to sort of look very good sometimes. And they do a lot of the heavy lifting.
0: Amazing! Uh, I'm I'm laughing because I've sat in a number of interviews where I think I've literally tried to talk people out of applying for the job. because you realise <laughs> you're going to be working every weekend, uh, really late, and this will be really hard? You've got kids; you're not going to see them. You know, and, and, and yeah. you're actually trying to, and they still go, "Yeah, I still really want to do it. I still really want to do it." And you go, okay. "Okay, if you're if you're crazy enough, then come and join the party." So yeah, it's good. Um, you mentioned that just then that you prefer
1: the hotel side than the <laughs> restaurant side. Why is that, as interest? I don't, don't know if I prefer it. Um, hotels was my first love, and I think that's because you know, I went to, I went to the states. I worked in this hotel with 500 rooms and it was fascinating you know like all these people coming and going and why they were visiting and and you sort of got to know them a little bit you know a a restaurant is sometimes a bit more transactional um you know you have a a limited window you have an hour or two to sort of look after somebody and then they're gone and then you you know someone else walks in which is also interesting but you know as you sort of people sort of when people sort of check into a hotel you know they're sort of in residence you sort of get to know them a bit more and I really enjoyed having this sort of not protracted relationship, but sort of getting to know. I mean, some people would clearly stay a night, but others would stay several nights, and from all over the world. And 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 you know, it was a really international sort of experience that I had. Um, but you know, restaurants are are something I love dearly as well. And um, you know, I've spent I've spent much of my career, you know, either you know, running restaurants or indeed like you know like I am today. I'm responsible for ten restaurants, and I have. Have lots of people that help me to to deliver what we do, but but I am fascinated by that part of the business, and and you know if I if I wasn't, I probably shouldn't be in the job I'm in.
0: Yeah, and you and you're not, you've still got hair, unlike me as well, Gareth. It's great, so even it's with, great. It, it slightly, can... only on the, only on the end. <laughs> one, which one of the restaurants? Uh, which one of the restaurants was that? Um, so you uh, you were you were big hotel stuff. You were in the US uh, running the Marriott, and then you came back to the UK with the Marriott Group, did you?
1: Yeah, I, I came back, um, and they they sort of sort of suggested I might consider their UK sort of graduate programme. I did that, um, thought it would be a good place to start. Um, Marriott was very good to me. I I learnt a lot about sort of, you know, sort of big hospitality business and and controls, procedures, lots of the things that, frankly, sort of unsexy, shall we say, but really underpin how you drive and deliver consistency um, and, and sort of operational excellence. And, and it was, there was this watershed moment for me where I realised that whilst I had learned a lot um, working from Marriott and sort of absorbing all the sort of SOPs and all those things that they churn out very, as well as anybody, um, there was very little that they were asking me to work out for myself. And I, I thought, hang on a second, if I'm not careful, I'm going to sort of be sort of conditioned to sort of spending my career implementing the manual rather than working out, you know, I suppose there was a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit about me. I was like, well, I, I'd like to work out what's right for this business. And, and you know, that sort of cookie cutter approach works to a point. Um, and I think it was probably about the same time that people were starting to want more individualized experiences, and didn't necessarily want to listen to the same soundtrack in the same lobby, you know, and all that sort of good stuff. And, and it's it's that prescribed in the big brands, and it has to be for for good reason. Um, and I remember thinking, "Hang on, now's the time for me to go and see what it's like to work maybe in a more independent environment and and have an opportunity to make my own mark." And and um, I did that, and I and I did that in a couple of businesses and privately held hotels in London here. Um, and then and then I remember sort of reflecting on that and thinking well, hang on a second I've done this really big hospitality stuff I've done a smaller independent and and actually somewhere in the middle is probably what I would like to to really do because I think there's there's there's, there's good and bad in both mm. um and and I guess in some ways I've sort of ended up in that position now where I say I work for a sort of a hospitality group rather than a hotel chain. Um, I have a lot of autonomy about how we operate this business. Um, But by the same token, there is a bit of infrastructure around me that helps me to do things, you know, on a scale such as the NED, which, Mm. you know, without a bit of of a a, a small army behind the scenes, we just wouldn't be able to do what we do today. Yeah, okay. I remember uh, chatting to a a
0: GM from the Marriott a few years ago and I was chatting about uh, just rooms, I think, and wanting to do, I've only got the 12 bedroom hotel, and that uh, audit process, just would be really handy to kind of have, you know, a checklist that we could look at. And and he said, oh, I'll get you the one from the Marriott. Don't sue me, Marriott, in case that was a bad thing to do. Yeah. Um, and he and he bought me this. Uh, it must have been forty pages of A4 of a list of things they check just yeah. when they go around the bedrooms yeah. and audit the bedrooms. And I remember going through it, going, oh my god, you know, at that level. If I gave my housekeeper that and said, I don't know, she, she, she yeah, it would have taken her a month to uh, to finish reading it. So yeah, that level of
1: prescription, I can imagine, uh, becomes frustrating. But- it's a, it's, a, it's a really good point, actually. Um, you know do you need 40 pages to tell you how to clean a room and and there was something else it was four pages on how to answer the phone you know i argue you don't you you might need four lines on how to answer the phone you know but actually they, they probably i think they take it too far and 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 i understand why but that's probably not not quite where i felt yeah. i wanted to be okay i
0: think we'll come back to that because i want to talk a little bit about how you the, the the pre-opening of this but um one of the hotels you ran then you you went from big to large because it was what was the 40 bed it was the uh, the hempole was it? it was the sort of 40 yes. bed more boutique was that very different what sort of things did you learn in contrast to your sort of you know two three hundred bedroom
1: and your 40 bedroom boutique yeah so so i think um you know the had 40 rooms and 10 apartments um and you know what i realized it it was a pretty small business with quite a high profile clientele and 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 the the opportunity to really individualize the experience um you know that everybody was a was was a name, um, wasn't just a guest. Um, and what does that mean? And how do you you know? When I the, the location of the temple as well was in this beautiful sort of um, Craven Hill Garden Square, where they'd filmed the movie um, Notting Hill, one of the scenes anyway from the movie Notting Hill, and it felt extremely residential. And I and I was you know we would use the language like, actually these that we're dealing with with you know guests are in residence rather than just checking in for the night. It was it was very much about trying to make them feel almost local whilst they were with us. And 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 therefore, you know, did we sort of recommend that they go and visit Buckingham Palace or would we tell them about a little antique shop around the corner in Portobello Road and and what restaurants would we send them to? You know, we we can all list you know those sort of household names with big celebrity chefs, or or do you know there's a fantastic up and coming chef who's who's doing amazing things and he's going to be a big name maybe in the future. And we were able to really it was almost like you know you were inviting someone into your house rather than you were there to service you know a sort of um, the needs of a business traveler although there were many business travelers it was it was it was much more um, considered rather than actually sort of a means to an end as it were mm. and can you can you take some of
0: that learning then and scale it to something the size of this you 250 rooms here were there was there some nuggets that you took from
1: that that you've been able to implement here or does it become impossible at scale it gets harder, there is no doubt. Um, you know, anyone who says it, it it's easily replicated on a on mass level. Yeah, That's just not true. Um, and um, I think what we've been able to do is we still talk about the hidden gems, for example, and the, and the sort of off-the-beaten-path type places to recommend using that concierge example that I gave you a moment ago. Um, so you, you shouldn't be told all about, you know, um, at what time Buckingham Palace opens and, and the Tower Bridge and all the rest of it. Um, but you should get a, 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 more of an insightful, um, recommendation. Um, similarly, you know, I have a lot of guests here who, you know, actually don't necessarily want to be engaged in the same way. This is, um, this is a, a purchase um, when they when they book a room here. This is a purchase of convenience. They are flying in. They've got meetings. They want a room that's ready on time, and they haven't got time to particularly get to know you or you get to know them. And and they just need to be um, serviced efficiently and be on their way. So, um, I think it's about trying to understand um, what each guest needs, and we have we have resource in this building that you know researches to to a greater extent, you know. Um, who each customer is, why they're coming. The internet is a very useful tool these days. You can find out a lot about people's um, backgrounds uh, and what their responsibilities are, what their companies do. Um, And that that evolution, of course, in the last 15 years has been enormous. So we have, I suppose, high levels of intelligence now um, that we are able to to use. And I think being emotionally intelligent and working out what somebody actually wants from you Mm. rather than, it's Just assuming every customer wants to sort of have a big hug and spend ten minutes chatting about how their day's been. Um, so the, the answer is is a bit of both.
0: Yeah, and how did you train that? Do you use personality profiling to to train your concierge team on to recognise the different personalities? I'm having flashbacks to when I worked in sales, and I, you know, you'd, you'd have your dominant individuals who you knew would be coming in, and they'd be straight to the point. You could almost tell by how they filled in their registration card at reception as to if it was if it was just your name, you know, you might have ten things that needed filling in. If you just put your name in, you were probably going to be sort of in a hurry, didn't want to kind of muck around. But if you doodled a little bit and you'd filled it all in and you'd maybe drawn a pretty picture, then they were the ones to chat to and spend time with, and, and they were dominant, influential. Or steady and cautious, I think. And I remember having to yeah. write the letter yeah. on each one. Do you use any kind of profiling techniques with concierge or are they just expected to have that emotional
1: intelligence? Yeah, I mean, we, the short answer is we don't have a, a tool, as it were. Um, we do carry out training. Um, and I do believe that, you know, people who are naturally emotionally intelligent, they can read, body language will tell you a lot. Um, and, and you're absolutely right. There, there, is, there are so many signs or clues Um when from the moment someone walks through the front door as to sort of quite what um, what they're going to want from you and and I think what we do is we make sure people whoever you are we make sure people understand what is available to you and it's up to you to decide in some cases as a as a guest or a customer you know how much you ask of of us in terms of that level of, of interaction so um, we clearly approach I guess a high value long stay, sweet guest differently to a, a sort of you know, Entry-level room, one night in and out. You know, it, 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 there's, there's lots of ways to sort of segment your 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 guest profile, if you like. Um, mm-hmm. And we have technology that also allows us to, you know, recognize preferences and, and 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 ensure that those that are returning, you know, have some sort of continuity. And I think we're very good at really simple things like making sure that if we know somebody likes a particular. Especially in a building like this where there's so many rooms, if someone likes a particular room, that we'll try and honour that they get the same room every time. It's quite nice when you go back and you feel like that becomes your room rather than I've just got that category of room. But I happen to be in a different floor or a different part of the building. Um, and, and and slowly but surely, we get to know people. Um, we have a very high level of repeat business here. Um, it surprised me, actually. Uh, and, and because we have so many assets within this building, we can see where people tend to eat there. Their breakfast you know they have six options and this person always tends to go to that particular restaurant or or you know when they here, they generally like to get their, like to get their nails done or, or they get their hair cut here and so um, because it's it's quite rich in terms of outlets and and the number of different reasons you can you know visit and use the property you know, slowly but surely, you build up quite a quite a sort of an um, in in-depth, if you like, mosaic on a lot of our a lot of our members and, and our customers that stay. Um, but there are also some, by the way, that you know pass through, and, and we have little knowledge of what they do and, and why they came. But um, you know, I guess that that's the game, isn't it? Mm. And have you have you written your own software to manage that data
0: and get visibility? Because it's very easy to get the data, but sometimes quite hard to interpret it. Or is it, have you got something off the shelf that, that gives you that?
1: Yeah, we've not written any of our own software. We do customise a lot of software. Um, and I guess what's slightly unique about the NED is that we have, um, you know, we have public and we have members um, and we have different software, you know. So I have a lot more software here than I have in hotels I've run in the past. Um, and that allows us to often dig in um, and understand, um, particularly where we've got members staying, um, allows us to understand what they Um, need and what they expect. And we can also link that back to um, a lot more um, uh, information that we extract from them as members. So when when you sign up to being a member, you, you obviously share a certain level of information beyond what you would share if you were just a hotel customer. Um, and, and so there, there is customized solutions if you like um, rather than specific or bespoke software that we um, mm-hmm. that we've developed for ourselves but yeah tying it all together and making sure you know, systems to interface and what have you it's uh, it's a bit it's it can be a minefield um, and often you know the quality of what you get out is subject to what you put in so we we we, we sometimes do a good job of that and sometimes not such a good job but we're yeah. we getting there. <laughs> I get very
0: excited by the potential of technology. You know, I always dream that people walk into my restaurant and it pops up. We use our iPads for ordering, and it pops up on the iPad and says, "You know, Dave's just walked in the front door. It's his birthday on Tuesday. He's got a table booked, and he was last in last Wednesday. And he, you know, his favorite beer is Estrella or his favorite wine's that." And I, I, dream about that possibility. And I sit with lots of techies who say, "Yes, yes, this is possible." But the reality of actually trying to build something that tracks it and manages it and makes it automated and makes it feel natural, and also doesn't freak them out, like so, we'll do the same sometimes in, you know, maybe doing some Facebook research and stuff like that but there's a fine line between yeah scaring the hell out of them for being a stalker and actually getting it to be what we want it to be which is just feel like very natural hospitality but when you scale that you you need some help in essence
1: yeah you do you do and maybe one other example from a sort of food and beverage perspective is we 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 partnered with open table as our sort of reservation um you know booking platform um but because we have eight restaurants public restaurants under one roof you know you, you often turn up um, or a, a guest or a customer will turn up and say, I, I've, I've got a table book for lunch. And we'll say, which restaurant? And they'll say, oh, I don't know. And <laughs> and my colleague booked it or my PA booked it. Um, and essentially we had eight separate um, uh, diaries. Um, and actually working with Open Table, we've managed to say, hang on, that doesn't work. I need to be able to search someone's name. And it will needs to spit out, oh, this person is booked in this restaurant. So we've we've actually started to, um, I suppose, our challenges that we faced have been, uh, I suppose in some ways research and development for some of the our partners who have subsequently developed their own technology to help service our requirements and are now sort of sharing that with with others so yeah, it's been an interesting journey and, and there's lots of stuff like that that we didn't necessarily envisage until it sort of sort of hit us between the eyeballs.
0: Yeah, no, that's a perfect example where you start with something that just feels very logical and then you go, actually, yes, to have a centralised database with the same with venues, to have one database that goes across venues, you think would be very simple, but the yeah. techies behind the scenes say, actually, that creates these challenges. of so Lots of those conversations. Do you think um, you mentioned earlier about uh, restaurants... Uh, being more transactional, I always think it's interesting as to how long you can impress somebody for. So when somebody comes into a restaurant, it's quite easy to look after them for a couple of hours and exceed expectations and really look after them and I always think it becomes more challenging the longer somebody stays because when you go to a hotel you've got to try and make everything um, you know, ideally better than it is when they're at their house, and that can be easy from a nice kind of bathroom and a nice room. But you know, cleaning your teeth or, or actually having a better night's sleep in a hotel bed compared to your own bed. And I find that the, the longer people stay, much as I love it because I get to know maybe the personalities and and their stories, but it becomes increasingly difficult, I think, to um, to impress. Uh, so it feels easier in a restaurant transaction than a hotel transaction. Would
1: that be fair? Or, or, or and have you found a way of you know sustaining that? I think, that's, I think that's very fair. Um, you know, we, we did a little, not a time emotion motion study, it would not be accurate, but we, we looked at the average um, hotel guest staying for two to three nights and how many interactions do they have with you. And and it was scary. Um, and, and, and when I say interactions, I mean that could be passing somebody in a corridor, that's the physical act of checking in or going to a restaurant having breakfast or whatever it may be. And... and we we believe that it's somewhere between two and 250 um, interactions in the space of two days. And how do you make sure that every one of those, it might, might be very subtle and might be very fleeting, but leaves a positive impression? And I mean, for example, walking out of your room, down the corridor to the lift, a room attendant or a room service uh, server passes you. How do you make sure they, they smile and look you in the eye versus possibly look down at their feet and think, you know, Goodness, don't talk to me! Don't talk to me! You know, um, and, and you know there are, and I'm being very honest and transparent. You know, um, some of our housekeeping team, as amazing as they are, English is not their first language. Sometimes they don't have the confidence. Um, and how do you bring out the best in the in the individual and ensure that you know every opportunity we leave even a slight a slight impression that is one of that was nice um, uh, and that was welcoming or that was friendly or that was warm. Uh, and, and it's really difficult and really difficult. And, and and it comes down to obviously hiring great people um, as best you can. Um, and, and I still believe that despite all the science around interviewing and behavioral interviewing and looking at people's CVs and track records and references, until they're in your business, you know, it's very hard to, to truly assess whether you've hired the right person. Um, and by then, they're in. Um, and then how do you make sure when you've yeah, – nobody, nobody is at 80% of capacity here. Everybody, you know, if anything, people probably feel they're over capacity a lot of the time. And and therefore, how do you make sure – also make sure you find time for training and coaching. And and those are real-life challenges um, that we are faced with. Um, but we're very, very serious about them. Um, we we recognize that, you know, the investment will pay dividends. We've built this. We've spent 200 million pounds in this building. and We've built something which is not a pop up in any way. Um, I certainly hope not, at least. And, uh, you know, for just to be sustainable in the long term and uh, sort of become one of those businesses that is talked about in 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now as a sort of an institution, which is kind of my vision for it. And it'll be someone else's job to take that on. But but, you know, I really believe and really want to ensure that we do things in a sustainable way now. And, and that does require, you know, high levels of investment in both, you know, physical time and and, 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 and payroll and other and other costs. Mm.
0: It's a great example, that quote of uh, 250 to 300 uh, points of contact over a few days. Been, yeah. I, I, the, the number of people that I've talked out of investing in restaurants or tried to explain how complicated a business is and why it's challenging. Because I always say to them, you know, it's a really challenging sector and that's a great example. You just, yeah, how do you make sure... That every single person, every single time, uh, like you say, looks them in the eye. That that level of complexity in this industry is something that I don't think your average person just walking into a building uh, appreciates. And I've been out for dinner so many times, or stay places with friends who. I don't know, I might complain about the littlest thing and I'm like, oh God, I don't, I don't want to be that bore that actually says, can I just explain what's probably going on behind the scenes at the moment and how many people are involved in that transaction? You yep. think you've just ordered a coffee, but you know, there's there's the waiter or waitress, there's the guy behind the bar, there's yep. the kitchen porter who didn't you know, fully clean that cup or the person that didn't notice it had a little shit, or whatever it might be, but there's 26 right. people behind the scenes there that have made sure that that cup of coffee have got to your table. And not only that, but we've served a 1,000 cups of coffee today. So if even 1% of those coffees has not gone out bang on, then this is the implication. And then I'd yep. be like, i should just shut up and uh, yeah enjoy enjoy the many great aspects um continuing your your trajectory then so lots of different hotels 2016 was that when you first heard about the ned you, you mentioned the building's been around for sort of or you've been uh, involved yeah. uh,
1: or, or somebody's been involved in it for 10 years how long were you involved before it opened so i i joined the business in 2016, 2016. um i got called in december 2015 um uh about possibly coming to have a conversation um with uh with nick jones actually about about this building um and um i got a call and i sort of politely said um it's mid-december we're flat out i was running some pancreas renaissance at the time you know it was a pretty sizable operation in itself and anyone who's got time to go and have a conversation about a new opportunity in december Probably isn't busy enough, or or, or or actually very good at their job. So it was a very sort of thanks but no thanks, and um, you know I got back to doing what I was doing, and then I didn't think too much more about it actually. Uh, and then in January, um, the phone rang again, and, and the same voice on the phone said, uh, "It's not December anymore. Will really you <laughs> come and have a chat with Nick?" So um, so I did, and uh, it was it was it was a fascinating. Um, conversation because um whilst i was keen to actually meet him and get to understand a bit more about what he was doing and and and, you know we hadn't met before um he he sat down with me and all he brought to the meeting was a book of a hundred um renders of what is the ned today there was almost no words in this book it was it was like it was like a picture book and i thought you know, when you when you and I've worked on new openings, you end up with a dozen renders if you're lucky. And this was a hundred renders, and this was only a selection of. The entire building had been completely drawn to the the, the, the precise details. You know, the artwork on the walls, the the the, the, the soft furnishing and designs, and all that stuff. And I'm thinking, this is just incredible. And I think, does this place really exist? And and that fueled my interest to actually, I want to see the physical. I want to see this building. Um, and and I came and saw it, and it was covered in scaffolding. There were five hundred builders doing their best to what looked like at the time um, dismantle it rather than putting it back together. And um, despite all that noise and dust and and, and sort of activity, um, there was it was immediately apparent to me that um, this was a very very special building, and it could be something that probably London hasn't really seen um, before, um, without wishing to overstate it. It's, 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 it's sort of what it's, what it's impact if you like. But, um, but, but I, 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 I knew that it would be one of those jobs that if I was offered it and, and I turned it down, it would probably be one of those, you know, you might have a regret one time in the future. And, and I, I, I always sort of said, don't have regrets. Um, you know, and, and that's why I felt, you know, what, well, this might just be one of the once in a career job. And I, I thought, go for it and say here I am glad you did yeah um, it's a privilege um, and I mean that sincerely Uh, and there's not many jobs I have described as a privilege Um, it's a true privilege uh, and it is the most rewarding job I've ever had in so many ways Um, and for that you you think well is is it the dream job And, and in some ways it really is um it is also the hardest job I have ever had um I don't think anyone anyone involved in the project really really had got their head around what we were taking on um you know we talked about it being ambitious and we talked about its scale um um but I think if we'd really confronted what we were dealing with, we'd have talked ourselves out of it and that's there's a fine line between being realistic um and, and sort of evaluating all the, all the risk, if you like, and also saying, you know, if, if, if we not careful, we won't do this. Um, and somebody, um, who's been a very good sort of mentor to me, a guy called Marcus Child, who's a sort of, um, he's a, he's a sort of motivational speaker, but he, he, but, but not in the traditional sense. And, and, and he said to me, you know, just think of those guys at, at NASA, you know, um, they didn't know whether they're ready to go to the moon or not, but they just had to go. and And I remember thinking, that's a really good analogy. Um, you can find so many reasons to not do something, but looking for the reasons to do it um, is a lot harder, but but can often re- lead to the most rewarding of experiences. And I think that's without, without again without trying to compare the Ned to NASA, but uh, I do feel like it's been one of those things. And and even my industry peers that you know I, I'm I'm close with, so sort of said. You know, I think I think, you know, you, you might have bitten off more than you can chew here and and I think you'll be all right, you know, Monday to Thursday, but what the hell are you gonna do at the weekend? Have you seen the city on a Sunday? And and of course, you know, you try not to sort of let those doubts creep in, but you know, they are like I was thinking I'm probably thinking the same thing as you to, to be honest. And and in some ways that served as motivation um and you know, allowed me to, you know, hire a team that that I thought Not blind optimism, but you know, people that were like, you know, I'm up for this, and had an energy about them, and and you know, when you when you're opening a new business, you don't inherit very much, um, and you get to make a lot of those decisions for yourself, um, and you'll be judged by them. And I remember thinking, wow, hang on, I've suddenly got this amazing opportunity, but it, the buck will stop, you know, good or bad, um, the buck will stop here. So, it 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 fueled me on actually, got me out of bed in the morning a bit earlier, and got me to bed a bit later and and that period of pre-opening is very precious time um and you, you the work that gets done then really sets the tone for what happens when the doors open and and I, you know, i if any had any regret, actually, it would be that I wish I'd been involved a bit sooner. Um, I thought that myself, I'd, to be fair, and we'll, we'll come back to that probably, because, yeah, when I saw that you were involved, literally, it was about a year
0: before it opened, I think, wasn't it? I thought, how yeah. the bloody hell did you get ready in a year? And I'll, I'll come back to that question. But before we do, and not everybody will appreciate uh, the scale of this place, and the reason I'm here is I saw you talk six or so months ago, and I thought, oh, my God, what an insane place that is an insane job but can you just paint a picture of exactly what goes on here maybe some numbers number of restaurants people employed that kind of stuff that just just uh, yeah illustrates why this is such a beast
1: yeah in headline terms um you know for us for a single address a single site um there's a there's a lot happening there's a lot of moving parts um we have for example a thousand staff working here um uh, and that is you know on the books um i, I tend not to count the the sort of the, the the functions that we outsource, which is not much, but you know we do have assistance from some agencies and some contractors, of course. Um, but there's a thousand headcount in principle. Um, gross revenues, this business are north of a hundred million pounds. Um, uh, over fifty million pounds is coming out of food and beverage. So um, we look to do a million pounds a week. Um, and when you think about that in in sort of revenue, it's one thing. When you think about it in terms of transactions. That's a huge amount of transactions. that's somewhere in the region of 30,000 plus people a week that we serve a meal to um, on the ground floor alone. Um, and on top of that... We've got events, um, which is a floor in this building, which can be you know, several thousand meals as well a week. Um, we serve a best part of you know, 15,000 staff meals a week. Um, so when you start rolling the numbers up, you know that's just the food and beverage component. On top of that, you've got 250 bedrooms. We run an occupancy in the very high 80s. Um, we've got a members club, um, well over 3000 members now. And um, you know, they have access to facilities almost around the clock. Um, you've got uh, a spa business here, which is not insignificant. Um, I've mentioned the private events. Uh, and, and um, you know, on top of all, all the sort of people that come here to dine, there are a lot that literally pass through for a coffee or a, or a glass of wine at the end of the day. Um, we don't count those as covers, but I would hazard a guess that there's probably another sort of 30,000 people a week who, who we can't directly track, um, as it were. But um, there's a huge amount of footfall, um, and that takes a lot of a lot of management, um, and and there's a lot of there's a lot of um, intensity about that. Uh, the city is still pretty traditional, um, whereby. A lot of people have to have sort of desks that they have to be at, you know, between nine and five, and so you get these big spikes in demand at breakfast time, lunchtime, after work, rather than you know other locations I've worked in London where it sort of tends to sort of be very steady all day long. Um, so yeah, we 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 do all those numbers I just referred to in, in sort of big tranches rather than than sort of very steady, consistent, and predictable demand patterns. I've got to have a lie down, Gareth. Just I'm getting a migraine just, <laughs> just just
0: thinking about the scale of that uh is insane but you didn't you didn't run away and i'm a big fan of uh two things i suppose action always beats intention so i think you can you can think about these things but fundamentally you just need to start and 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 then once you've started i think you work out that within reason everybody's winging it to an extent nobody's gonna have all the answers you can't i don't think have all the answers before you open something like this you just have to start having said that you needed to do a shed load of work to at least give you the the best possible case (laughs) Did you appreciate before you came in how big it was going to be, and if you did, why on earth didn't you run for the hills?
1: Um, very good question. I mean, again, I was a bit like a moth to the flame. You know, there was something about it from the word go that I knew could be special, um, and and I suppose everyone has has that. One, not maybe not the one big job. Maybe you get more than one big job. But like, I suppose we all have that, that that one big moment in us. And I thought this could be mine. Um, it's it's you know sort of uh, the, the, so the ambition was was it was almost comical how much ambition it was. And I thought, well, you know, you know have a go, right? Um, and and you know, I think Nick is very very visionary, uh, and and he talks in a way that's very compelling. Um, and, and actually what i'd probably learned is you know vision is one thing um courage is something else so we can all we can all sort of spoof away over a, over a beer about what we would what we might do um and i thought nick's courage was infectious um and that was a big part of it and and it's not just nick in fairness nick we the first to say he's got a he's got an amazing team around him and he really does um and i was I was impressed, hugely impressed, in in a very short space of time as I went through that sort of recruitment process with um, what the company's track record was um, and and some of the people that were in the organisation, you know, who are clearly extremely talented and and were. What was quite nice about it was that. I was being surrounded by people that weren't all from hospitality. You know, there was a nice balance of hospitality people, but also people that were experts in their field, but might have a retail background or might have a tech background or or might have a design background. And yet we were all trying to deliver a, a sort of big hospitality project. And so and that was very stimulating. And, and, and I almost saw it as um, sort of an opportunity to get sort of... A, not masterclass. That, that sounds a bit too grand, but um, an opportunity to for, for for development. When you get to general manager level, you know a lot of you. You're always you always continue to learn, of course, but a lot of your formal development is done. Um, and I saw this as like a it's almost like this a potentially a great finishing school. And and um, you know I, I knew that there were things that I could i could add value to um you know so house as a, as, a, as, a, as a company was not a a traditional hotel company um, in fact it was more clubs and restaurants and yet you know my hotel background was probably a nice complement to that but there was also a huge amount i was going to learn and i thought you don't get chances like this very much um and uh, and it was really that that i thought you know this is this is for all for all the reasons that it might be a bad idea there are too many reasons why it could be a very good idea sold it to me i think i think you're right and yeah,
0: you know, what a unique opportunity it is so you mentioned the the sort of you know 100 pages of, uh, of visuals that we already had getting involved uh only a year ahead were you involved in the design of how the space was going to work or was all that done what what was your sort of primary role in that
1: first year and we'll come back to recruitment but the more the design and architecture side so um and usually uh the company employs all its own in-house designers, so we didn't go out to an agency, you know, and do a sort of beauty parade and say, right, who are we going to work with, and who's our designer of choice for this project? Um, and what's very clever about that um, is not only do you have everybody's on the same team, um, and everybody should be more aligned, more naturally aligned than the objectives. You know, certain designers, you know, third-party designers can often have their own particular style or view of the world, rather than um, necessarily always adhering to or or listening closely enough to the brief. So I think straight away, we sort of eliminated some of the the challenges you can face when when dealing with designers, but also that the hotel had been designed conceptually um, and that we knew where the restaurants were going to be located, but we hadn't necessarily signed off off on all the detail and and the, the design process ran in tandem with the construction process. Whereas in a more traditional environment, you design it on paper you might do a sample room or or agree a certain level of of specification and then that gets delivered um by a a contractor that will build it for you um and and the design when it comes to reality when 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 the project is delivered can often be five years out of date you know something that was designed five years ago um, may not necessarily be current or relevant anymore and so whilst whilst we had designed or agreed on all the important stuff when I joined the project about number of bedrooms and number of kitchens. You know, we were making decisions up until, I mean, the best example probably is Kaya, which is an extremely successful restaurant for us on the ground floor, and per square foot It's probably our most successful restaurant, actually. You know, 2 months pre-opening, we had not designed, what, had not decided what that concept was going to be. Um, and we wanted to see, really wanted to be in touch with what the latest trends were, where we saw a gap in the market, um, otherwise we probably would have ended up with something you know that that might not necessarily have been you know quite so well received or, or so relevant in, in in sort of you know the current day so it was it was a really interesting way of approaching the project and to work alongside a designer and and as an operator to be able to provide my input and say I love it but I don't think it's durable enough um, and for them to say good point let me go away and think about that again. Um, You know, and to have a, a real living, breathing relationship in real time rather than saying, well, that was decided, it's been signed off, I'm afraid that's what's been ordered. Um, now that does put you under pressure um, uh, in other ways. So I'm not making it sound like it's straightforward because it certainly is. I like like the fact you made it sound like it was by design or we didn't want to start thinking about it until
0: two months before we opened in case, you know, we got it in in case it wasn't in vogue. I'd have been sort of slightly crapping myself, I think with it two months ahead going, all right, so what should we put in this space? But come on, carry on.
1: No, I mean, yeah, 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 exactly that. And, 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 um, you know, you, you really, um, you know, I, th- I think at some point you have to make a decision. There comes a point where we cannot turn back from this, otherwise we will not open on time. Um, but pushing the boundaries of what might be um, possible, and it's things like, isn't it? You can. I remember we, we. I remember there was a whole load of sort of furniture carcasses that were sitting in Italy and in Bali, I believe, but we hadn't decided on whether it was going to be leather or fabric and whether it was going to be burgundy or green and you know you can actually there's still quite a high level of customization that can be done at quite short notice and and it's it's it takes a special it takes a special sort of um uh, approach and it takes um you know, probably a little bit of extra budget in some regard to be able to push things through at short notice. But I think you end up with a better product at the end of it.
0: Mm. Um, it certainly buzz. Well, I've opened a, a few restaurants and it's nice to know that even at a big scale, it operates that way because I, I work on the presumption that, you know the efficient and the and the grown up business approach of doing this is design it, get it right, get a few companies in to quote and spec it, and then get the you know get the best quote to actually go and build it. Uh, whereas the stuff I've done tends to be generally motivated by uh, the season. So in in Bournemouth, you know we have to hit the summer. So yeah. fundamentally, we've always built places and they need to open, you know, ready ready for the season and and which and we haven't had the luxury of kind of acquiring those buildings ages in advance so we've literally yeah, designed and built at the same time and it's uh it's expensive because you end up having to throw a load of labor at it to hit your opening date yeah uh, it's great fun but but it's stressful and that's at a small scale doing that on something of the scale of this is is incomprehensible but it makes sense i wondered how you'd pulled it off in a year so yeah that ability to design and build as you go uh, I guess was helpful and that, and presumably that's continued post opening if you've needed to make tweaks and changes having
1: in-house designers is helpful. Yeah, I'm very lucky. Um I make I make no secret of the fact that I have a resource here that I've never had before. So, you know, I have an in-house graphic design team. I have an in-house interior designer who's on my books, you know, so so even now if I wander around and I think something's looking a bit tatty or I'm not sure it's quite right, you know, there is somebody who I is 30 seconds away from wherever I might be in the building I say can you come look at this with me um and we can take a view on it um, and and you know uh, the, the, the sort of wider so house team are very close to the detail as well and um, I have access to you know Nick and or others if he wants to have a say over how we actually might change something he might feel strongly about it we don't agree on everything and and it's I think it's important to be able to challenge one another um, yeah. but we make we also made you know whilst I think we got a lot of it right we definitely made mistakes you know and i think we learned from that i mean a good example of that is that a large percentage of the furniture for example in this building is 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 genuine vintage furniture and it's it's sort of it's complements the the aesthetics and, and the sort of scheme that we went for in trying to sort of bring back that sort of 1920 sort of faded glamour and what have you and whilst some of the furniture makes gives the place some real character you know, something that was built 100 years ago is not going to withstand the rigours of, you know, um, you know a, a six turns a day in a restaurant environment or, or a bedroom that, you know, people might have a tendency to want to party in a, a suite. And you think, well, that table is not going to withstand someone jumping on top of it, you know, all that sort of stuff. So how do you make sure that you have that individuality and that sort of vintage look and feel at the same time know it's going to stand up to the test and we've learned a lot of lessons around that um and and you know we've probably you know had to replace some things sooner than we would want to have i can't pretend that is is not the reality but it's also given us um you know a really special product here and i think if anything i'd like to think the ned will will sort of wear in and and become better with time rather than it might look a bit naff and you know old hat in in, in a year's time Mm.
0: and where you've uh, had to take over an existing space and restaurants all need to have an individual feel have you managed to keep a lot of the original character of the building and still get presumably an individual character into each restaurant as well because that must be very
1: challenging yes um I mean interestingly the, the the grade one listing of the building um prohibited the removal of almost anything um it, and I mean almost anything so whereas there's a, the ground floor is seen as this big space um which is sort of uh, comprised of eight restaurants now um you know when it, when there was no one here and it was just a big empty space it was like this big room it was carved up by these slightly annoying banking counters that got in the way and and what the design team did was used those counters to become sort of natural petitions. Um, and the big circular oculus, in other words, a sort of the big secular circular reception desk, was right in the middle of the ground floor, and they put a lid on it, and it became um, a stage for for entertainment, and and so once the sort of floor plan was agreed, and the, you know this banking counter become a long dining table, and this will become a stage, and this will become a uh, this 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 teller's booth will become a sort of a hostess station once that was once that was done um it became much easier to look at the ground floor as eight individual projects rather than just one big project which is how you look at it when you start with this massive room um and and using you know the cuisine to tell the story so um, you know, making sure that whatever we did, we did with real authenticity. And, you know, you go to Chaconis, for example, which was the only brand, and we Soul House owns Chaconis, so it was the only one that was established and it was a, not a copy and paste exercise, but you know, the DNA existed. Um, but we made sure Chaconis is run by Italians um, and we made sure that Kaya is run by Asians. Um, and Café Sue, our little French um, patisserie and, and, and coffee shop, is, is predominantly run by french and, and sort of continental europeans and and you know through that and and the cuisine um you know we sourced a lot of the um the design and the inspiration from those parts of the world and 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 the graphic design team did a brilliant job and the content team did a brilliant job i think in in sort of writing or helping to, to create the narrative that goes behind it um it actually um was hard but easier than I thought it was going to be. And and I do feel that you sort of get a fairly authentic experience. If you go to Millie's, you feel like you're in an English English brasserie. And you go to Giaconi's, I think you feel like you're you're in an Italian restaurant, even though you might only be sat ten meters away from from, you know, each other as it were. So so yes, it's it's I'm, I'm probably oversimplifying it. But um, so we've only got an hour, so it's probably good. But yeah. <laughs> I, could, I, could, I could ask you 30 questions on that. Um, but so each of those restaurants, you run them all yourselves and they were all your own, you know, in-house kind of design and concept and stuff like that, basically. Yeah. So so Chaconi's, as I say, was a brand that existed. And, and you know, that's a pretty tried and tested formula. Um, it's very similar to Mayfair, only we have pizza here. So that was a sort of made one step of an evolution. And we put these two wood-fired ovens in the middle of the ground floor. Um all the other concepts were completely original to the building, um, and our joint venture partner here, um, Sadell Group, who are well known in North America and are soon to open in the UK. They have a new project in Covent Garden. Um, they developed Zoblers, um, which is our sort of New York deli uh, slash diner, um, and you know they're based out of New York. and. Um, you know the 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 principle of Sodell Group is, is Jewish, and you know he, he he brought real authenticity to to that concept, um, and the and the rest was you know all developed from scratch really, um, but we have a bit of form in that we operate a few restaurants and uh, and and the like around the world. So um, as an example, in we have Sower House in in Malibu, California, um, where it's a very sort of clean, healthy. Um, interesting and original sort of menu um, featuring ingredients, actually, that I, many of which I hadn't heard of. What, what are taro chips and goji berries and, and all these sorts of things? And, and um, you know, we were able to draw on some of the success that we've had elsewhere, and so we'd love to sort of um, – use use that as a, as a as the basis of inspiring a, a, a design or a or a concept here in London. So so for example in that in that real life example, um little beach house Malibu, California is there's a there's a small restaurant here called Malibu Kitchen and there's a lot of DNA that we've we've pulled and we were able to use the the expertise that existed in California and say can you help us develop a menu that will be you know, true to what you stand for, but also maybe customize it or tailor it a little bit for for sort of the UK market and sort of slightly different ingredients, of course, that are in season at different times of the year. And and um, you know that was that was a that was probably the most fun part of the project, actually. Amazing. Did they all work? Yeah, they did. I mean, I, I shouldn't have done. They definitely shouldn't have done. You know, let's look at the law, of, the law of, law of, of averages. Thing. Like two or three of them should have been a flop. Yeah. And um, I can't pretend that some didn't ramp up quicker than others. But as a general rule um, they were all immediately successful the, the one actually that I think is an interesting um, well, there's a couple of concepts so so Zobler's and Kaya I've talked about already um, they both had quite a significant takeaway component built into their business model and the reason for that is that I said before people have quite traditional jobs around here they eat lunch at their desk often um, and they need to run out grab a pret or something else and take it back and so we wanted to make sure we weren't missing a trick to be able to service the sort of the the, the community that that were our neighbours and we found that we were doing very little takeaway business and What's wrong? Well, it's the same food, you know, and the packaging's good. It's the same food as you get if you sit down. Why Why are we struggling with this? There's 800,000 people going out for lunch every day. Um, and when I say going out, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. taking having a takeaway lunch every day. Um, and, and it became apparent when we got to sort of know people and talk to them a bit more, um, the customers that is, they said, well, it's just such a great building. Why would I want to take it away? I'd much rather eat in. We thought wow and, and I suppose that's a really it's a lovely compliment um and so you know we had to sort of undo what was quite an expensive and quite a considered sort of takeaway concept um in or sections of the restaurant that were designed for sort of collection food collection and turn that back into well you can Turn that into a bar that you can sit at rather than a, a counter you can order from, um, and and uh, that was very interesting. And and probably one other that was very interesting for us was um, Zobler's, which was uh, I thought I mentioned as well was was a deli, essentially um, when it when it launched, and it did extremely well at breakfast and did extremely well at lunch, and we really struggled in the evening. And I thought again, it's the same food. Like why? why would it struggle in the evening and and yet successful at breakfast and lunch and it, and it's quite simple I think I think the deli is not quite as um, uh, established a concept in the UK as it is in America but um, the reality is that if you're going out for lunch or breakfast, so sort of deli sounds right but when you're going out for dinner, do you go to a deli for dinner or do you go to a restaurant for dinner and so um, by literally adding the word we make a, a couple of tweaks to the menu but essentially adding the word deli and diner. Almost overnight, the dinner trade corrected itself and, and it was, you know, it was almost, you know, as busy as it had been um, within a very short space of time at lunch and at breakfast. So, again, subtleties of how you position things and and, and how people sort of perceive them in their minds. This was a big It's amazing big,
0: it's why it's the art of the restaurateur, and not the science of the restaurateur. I think, yeah, isn't it? Just those little nuances. I think you're right. And um, can you just turn up and, and walk
1: into some of these in the daytime then? Is this, or is this all by reservation? Are you fully booked? I mean, theoretically, yes. Um, there are definitely times of the year and times of the week when I would strongly recommend don't make a long journey to the Ned unless you've made a booking. Um, and you know, maybe the best example of that is Sundays um, when you know we were terrified we would be sort of empty and the place would feel like a ghost town. And we put a huge amount of emphasis on how we might create a destination at the weekend and we... We came up with this idea that um, we would do this completely overblown, sort of borderline ridiculous Sunday carvery meets um, the great sort of pub lunch meets um, you know a buffet that you might see in the Far East, where you know sort of 30 meters long and, and all, all you can imagine, and and we we called that Ned Sunday Feast. Um, And There are lobsters. I won't won't share with you quite how many lobsters we buy. It almost feels like there's going to be none left in the sea. But um, we pile lobsters up, um, you know, sort of three feet high. You've got ribs of beef and, you know, sort of huge cuts of of other sort of animals and and meat. Um, There's salads aplenty. There's a whole dessert buffet in its own right. Um, and we refined it and refined it and refined it um, and you know we made lots of mistakes in terms of what we thought we wanted and what they didn't want um, but you know we now have an eight week waiting list for Sunday lunch. We have over a thousand people um, that come between 12 noon and 9 pm um and on on the back of that it's it's it's, you know, it's like the the great Sunday roast I suppose on, on steroids and um, and on the back of that we recognized that. Um, there might be more opportunity and we now offer a feast. We offer four feasts simultaneously on a Sunday. So there's the English feast, which is Ned's Sunday feast, which is the main one, and then Ciccone's does an Italian sort of feast. Um, Kaya now does its own um, Asian-inspired feast. And then we do a, another feast um, in one of the members' restaurants downstairs, which is a bit of everything. Um, and um, they are they are extremely popular and, and, you know, for us it's made it's made the sort of city very accessible. You get... You get, um, you know, couples. You get grandparents. You get huge family birthday parties you get all sorts and um it's made Sundays actually a really fun day um and the first time in my career that actually in some ways sunday is the busiest day of the week rather than you know the day where everyone sort of has it off and catches their breath so um it's been really fascinating
0: that's amazing isn't it? you only do things at like, like a grand scale don't you it just sounds huge and uh, is that a, is that a fixed price for a feast then if you're doing a buffet yeah or? yeah
1: it's, yeah so so yes exactly so ned sunday feast is 49 pounds um right. You know, and if you can sit you have as many lobsters as you want for that, and roast beef, and glass of um, welcome drink, and Amazing. salads and desserts. I mean, it's yeah, I mean good value. And I think one of the things that probably wasn't drummed into me when I worked in a more corporate environment, and one of the things that Nick has been instrumental that, and, and and Martin, uh, who is our COO, is you know be generous. Um, people will recognize it, they will value it, and they will vote with their feet. Um, and nobody doesn't matter how much money you've got in your back pocket, nobody, um, everybody likes to feel well looked after and feels likes to feel like they've had a good deal and, and has a perception of what value is. And, and you know, the moment you start to sort of cut back and which often happens when time, times are tough, you know, the customer sees it and notices it. And, you know, you won't have a big overnight, you know step change in performance but you'll slowly erode all that goodwill that you've spent a long time putting together so you know we have almost a philosophy if times are tough you know go bigger and go harder rather than cut back accordingly you know And, and actually that's been a real lesson for me on this journey and and i think something that i will take with me whatever i do um you know whether it's here or elsewhere in the future
0: that's good to know because that's how hospitality should be i think isn't it we we, we've made hospitality a business but traditionally that kind of thing of open your door and allow your family and your friends in and sit around a table and 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 be generous and and kind of guests always eat and drink first the tradition the the kind of where hospitality came from is steeped in that and and too many businesses forget it so keeping that at the heart of what you do i think genuine hospitality is key yeah it's like it's our bedrock really Mm, yeah Yeah. what makes interesting um (laughs) I could stay on the, 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 the mammoth scale of, of, of the NED and, and, and all sorts of stuff, but I want to chat around some of the kind of traditional uh, or perceived issues, I suppose, around this, which, again, you do on a huge scale. So recruitment is considered to be particularly challenging in hospitality i suppose trying to convince people that this is a career and not just a stopgap between uh you know kind of college and university and particularly it feels like in the last few years around uh, chefs and then we've managed to do well actually not mentioning the brexit word until now but the challenges of of that kind of ability to flex the workforce you said you've got a thousand people working in the building mm-hmm. is it is it difficult to find and train them and, and what are you
1: doing to uh, get around that yeah, it's really hard. Um, make no mistake. And the problem is, as well as needing a thousand people, um, I need a thousand seasoned operators. Really, I mean, we do have some apprentices. Don't get me wrong. We do have some management trainees, uh, some graduates, um, people who have not worked in hospitality before. But it's it's not for everybody here. Like this is a really tough place to work. It's very busy, and so I'm often looking for people who, you know. Need to have a track record that suggests they're going to they're going to have the stamina, for want of a better word, to to be successful here. So, it's definitely difficult for us. Um, we were very creative, I think, in um, in the lead up to opening. We we recognised which was bang around the Brexit vote, and we realised things hadn't gone our way, or certainly the way we needed them to go. If we were going to be reliant on migrant labour and Europeans to continue coming to the UK, and 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 we said, well, if they're not coming here. Um, you know, we we are not going to find the number of people we need to open this building in time. So we flipped it on its head, and we said, well, if they won't come here on their own accord, we'll go and we'll go and get them. Um, and so we set up recruitment offices in Spain uh, in, and in Italy, uh, and we've subsequently set one up in Romania, um, where essentially we have our own in-house recruitment agency. So they are either employed full time by us or they are contractors who are exclusively retained by us. Um, And every now and again, we we, will establish... So, for example, Italy is is a big source of where our chefs come from, Um, uh, not for every restaurant, of course, but but for a lot. Um, And we... We'll go to Italy once we have a pool of applicants and actually use um, um, training kitchens that we have um, managed to secure over there. And we'll put everybody through an audition, um, slash a trial, slash a, a cook off, and decide that of that 20, that number of 20 chefs we've met today, eight of them would be great for us. Um, and we'll send you know, a team out from, from here, um, you know, the executive chef of a particular restaurant, whatever it may be, and he'll go and, and he'll say, you know, I've assessed them and we will bring them back. And and we will, you know, we found that one of the barriers was people were nervous about well, where am I going to live when I get there? And, you know, I just don't even have the £200 to pay for my flight. So um, provided someone stays with us for 12 months after we bring them over, we pay for their flight. We pay for their first two weeks accommodation, which we, we you know, is a cost to us. We don't own a staff house or anything like that. We, we find premises um, uh, locally and we, um, we fund that. Uh, And we also give them an Oyster card and a bit of pocket money to make sure they, you know, for the first few days they can find their feet. Um, And that's been really successful for us. Um, And despite all the sort of headwind that we face as an industry in regards to attracting, um, you know, uh, overseas labor, um, it's allowed us to actually, um, you know, more or less service our needs. Um, It's still tough. Uh, I can't pretend that, you know, that tactic alone um, is all that we need to do. Um, but we we are, you know, in a, in a pretty good place, all things considered. And I you know, have somewhere in the region 160 chefs at any one time in the building. Are they
0: permanent offices overseas or is this something you do as and when you need it, you'll sort of send a team over? Or? No,
1: it's, it's pretty permanent. Um, and um, we also have the ability to dovetail with Sotter House. So, you know, there are times when, um, we'll do a joint trip, uh, and so a house will have a requirement, and we might have a requirement, and so you know, joining forces and going out as a as a as a team, one team, um, has been really successful for us. Or if for some reason we can't make a trip for whatever reason. Um, and go and join up with our counterparts over there. Then, then, then they can go for us, and or vice versa. So, um, but they are permanent offices, yeah. And um, but they're literally just recruiting in-house.
0: You don't offer that as a service to. Yeah, other we people. don't recruit for any other business. No, I mean, yeah, it'd be lovely be to just think about to ask for a couple.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it'd be lovely to think that we would exhausted all our own requirements. But you know, we are we are growing as a company as well. And that's other point to know. Yeah. You know, Since the net opened, you know, the parent company, Sell House, has opened. 10, 11 places, you know, not all in the UK, in Europe as well. But, um, you know, we, we, we need to do that just to sustain and fulfil our own requirements. Yeah. So how many people did you have before you actually opened the doors on the books ready to go? Total headcount, from memory, I think total headcount when we opened doors, it was about 650. Right. So, um, and I think we thought 750 would probably be what we needed. Um, mm. And we learned very quickly it wasn't. Um, fortunately, we were busier um far more quickly than we thought it would be as well so actually it was sort of self-funding the additional it wasn't it was just we just underestimated the payroll requirement Um we underestimated the payroll requirement relative to the business level mm. so it's been it's been overall it's been a great success actually but um when you suddenly realize within probably a month of trading that we're actually turning away a lot of business here or we're not servicing as well as we could do or we're not turning tables as quickly as we should um you know you're, you're suddenly forced into a big rethink and uh you know, we were lucky that again, being part of a bigger group, there was a task force that we were able to lean on. Um, but you know, task force helped me out. It didn't help some of the other businesses, and so, you know, that's always going to be a short-term thing. But you know, it was, it was, it was tough, but we, we got through it. Um, and uh, you know, I'm glad to say it's a, sort of a distant memory now. Okay. Nearly, yeah, yeah. You, you're right. You can only flex people and get them all on seven day weeks and
0: put in that extra effort in short term. And I think people will when you first open because everybody realizes you can't plan for it, but it's not sustainable, particularly in uh, you know in the heat of the kitchen when those guys are, are doing seven day weeks. They need some downtime to manage it. So I, I, I've had that experience. Um, how far in advance were they here, and how do you go about training to open something like this? Because it's different when you're bringing people into an existing business mm. and you. You can train, you know, on the floor, and you can kind of hit the ground running. But to get that that size eight restaurants, you know, all these rooms open on a certain day, it must be like you know choreographing a, a huge team of people. How far in advance do you get them in, and, and are there any little nuggets of
1: wisdom you've learned of how to pull that off? That's a great question, actually, um, and it's not something I've thought a lot about since being open. Sorry to bring back these I, memories. No, it's actually it's a really good point because that actually was something that kept me awake at night. Because I felt very strongly that we needed to have people here much earlier than um, some of the people I worked with, and and, and particularly my boss, who was looking who at was, who was saying, "Listen, we can't afford to have all these people here. And actually, what are they going to do anyway? Um, you know, they can't get if you can't get into a kitchen, then what are you going to do with them? And and there's some definite truth in that. Um, and I suppose what 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 became quite apparent is. Um, and if I say this carefully, because it's not entirely accurate, but work sometimes expands to fill the time available. So if you tell somebody you've got forty-eight hours to be ready for something, um, and I'm, I'm not I'm not talking about specifically onboarding and the training, but you've got forty-eight hours to organise this office, kitchen, um, workspace, whatever it might be, um, or you give them four, you know ninety-six hours. The truth is, they'll, they'll they'll probably get the same amount of work done to some degree um and of course the later we brought people on the more finished the building was and the less likelihood i mean there examples of you know cleaning bedrooms and you know, having them all ready to go, bar the beds made and everything, completely clean. And then, you know, some builder was, I need to go back into all the bedrooms and I need to recalibrate the air conditioning system or something. And before you know, there's dust everywhere again, because there's dust in the ductwork and the pipe. And you may as well have not bothered. Um, and so there were things like that that I remember thinking, oh, crack I'm very glad, actually, we didn't have too many people doing too much of that beforehand. Um, but it did put a huge pressure on us to sort of almost be able to sort of hit the ground running Um which, which you know, some people did very well, and others it was it was probably overwhelming. I mean, and and, and understandably so. Um, we we do something called club school here, which is a sort of a mass onboarding, um, which is very practical. Um, it's not sort of sitting in a room listening to PowerPoint for three days. We do sort of maybe half a day of that. Um, all the important stuff that we need to sort of share, you know, visually. But then we do a huge amount of um, of work around um, practical training and you know even at interview stage you know no one was being no 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 sort of hands-on employee was being asked to sit down and spend 30 minutes telling us about their career they were being asked to demonstrate like here I'll make me a martini and then run it over to that table over there even if it happened to be a building site at the time and 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 how do you carry your tray how do you carry yourself do you spill it um you know and so we were we were really very very particular about making sure we were assessing the skills that mattered rather than having these sort of quite conventional sort Of interactions with people in a meeting room around, so tell me about yourself. I mean, that doesn't actually matter too much, really. So, so I, yeah, I'm not sure I've answered your question. No, it's perfect, it's actually very refreshing to hear because I, I have this,
0: uh, as why I enjoy these conversations, this sort of misconception, I suppose, of the luxury of having your team in 60 days in advance. And and uh, I hadn't really appreciated, I guess, that you have the same challenge, you know, where actually there's an inevitability about the fact that even if you think the kitchen's going to be ready two weeks before you open there's a problem with the gas supply or the extraction's not ready and these things get delayed and like you say the multiple cleaning of rooms before a builder goes back in so it's just nice to hear that even when you're well financed and well backed that you face the same uh, challenges and opportunities because like you say you save a lot of cash by not bringing people in two months in advance but it's almost incomprehensible to imagine the amount of pressure that you would have been under on those that that's those first couple of weeks to yeah to train live on the job um because it does take time for people to bed in it must be I, i've always thought you've had a ridiculously stressful job gareth but i think it might actually have improved from that, that those first <laughs> couple of months when you first opened
1: i think it has slightly, like,
0: yeah yeah um, staying on hr and we need to, to to wrap up shortly because of time but the ned won a, a human resources team of the year award Can you just spend a little bit of what, what you do not only to find the people but then how you keep them in the business i guess
1: yeah, that's that's something that you know. Being very candid with you, I don't think we did well um, in year one, and I don't I don't think that's because we didn't think it was important, um, or you know, didn't feel that you know we were at risk of losing people. Um, I think there was so much going on that everything needed everyone's attention, and and it was you know it was slightly chaotic, um, and and at the start it was probably very chaotic, and and you know everything needs you know. Uh, nurturing when you're when you're a new business and and no, no none more so than your people um, and I think there was only so much nurturing we could do um, so we definitely lost some people that you know probably should have worked out here and would have been brilliant um, and um, you know I, I I don't know what I don't quite know what I would have done differently um, if I'm honest and that's, there's lots we could have done um, but some of that was sort of circumstantial. Um, but subsequently, you know, certainly after the first six months, we really, really, as, as things started to settle a little bit, um, we really put a huge amount of emphasis on um, not only the ability to attract talent, but to retain the talent that was through the door um, and recognise that you can spend £200 million on a building, um, but if you can't bring it to life in the right way, then actually that's slightly an academic exercise. Um, we, we, I think, are... Much much better employers today than we've than we've been historically. We've introduced a number of new benefits, um, so we allow um, a little bit more flexibility around working. We're, we're actually trialling in some areas. I can't pretend in all areas because it's not practical. But um, four day weeks, um, for where where possible, I think that's you know trying to take a lead from some of these sort of more progressive sort of tech type companies, and and it's not just that we are seeing it in hospitality as well. You know a, a number of high profile chefs have said we're going to our kitchens to a four day four day week. We're looking at that. Um, we give back, we give people some paid time off to um, spend uh, time working in a charity, a charity that um, we have several pillars here. And as long as the charity aligns with one of our pillars, um, then we're very happy for people to, to be paid to go and spend some time um, supporting those charities, which I think means a lot to a lot of people, particularly this sort of Gen Z who are, Feel very connected um, with sort of the, uh, a larger agenda, should we say? Um, we have improved, you know, staff welfare. I mean, all the emphasis when, I, when we first opened was on like, you know, does front of house work and our people walk our customers walking through the door, handing us money, handing us their money and leaving with a good experience. Well, actually, what's happening at the back door? And actually, are we taking care of people from the moment they arrive? And are there do we have enough uniform and the right uniform? And or is that person still waiting for a pair of trousers or what's the quality of the food in the canteen like? And, you know, obvious stuff, really obvious stuff. And Anyone listening to this, will be thinking, well, tell me, tell me something I don't know, but it's very easy to, um, to sort of maybe underestimate how important that is and to, to maybe not be clear about what is, what is good and what is great and what is outstanding. And, you know, a lot of what we do, we try and be, you know, exceptional or outstanding. And sort of internal language we use, and say, so, well, can we apply that to, you know, every part of our business? And if we can't, then why can't we? And what do we need to do about it? So that was a that was a big thing and a big sort of sort of look yourself in the mirror moment um, for me and my senior team and all our HODs, and said, you know, what are we not getting right? And and there was a lot. I have to be honest, there was a lot. I mean, we didn't have enough lockers. I remember. At one point I realized there were about a hundred staff I couldn't even give them a locker and we'd underestimated with the growth I mentioned the growth that we thought we had extra lockers and with the growth of the, the, the headcount grew beyond our our provision of, of, of facilities and was hang on a second um, and the opening hours the canteen aren't right we can't feed everyone so it's now an all-day dining room rather than you know we lunch service for four hours closed for two hours dinner service for three hours so all, all that stuff which you know until you sort of top stop and take stock of it you know, what can be quite simple fixes and make a big difference can be sort of, you know, completely pass you by. So
0: I think there's a certain irony in our industry that we specialise in hospitality and we specialise in looking after people, but so often that's neglected with your in-house team. And not not necessarily through choice, because we we're naturally hospitable people. It's why we work in the industry. It's just bloody hard behind the scenes. It's long hours. It's tough. If 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 the customers yeah. are there and they need looking after, that's your primary focus and it's what you'll do. And the fact that somebody's you know having to pull an all you know an all day shift or uh, or hasn't had a break or hasn't eaten the customer always comes first but you remembering that and then putting the time and the energy into managing it is key but it's it's challenging for the whole industry so i don't think people will be listening going well, that's obvious I think they'll be going yeah it's obvious but it's bloody hard to actually yeah. pull off in this sector but we've got to do it because that's that's our whole re- reason for being is to look after people and, and the number of chefs I've had are you think god you're not seeing your your family and you're not seeing your kids because you're always in the kitchen you're working so bloody hard what an irony that here we are looking after the public so that they get time with their families yet you don't get to see yours so it's a it's a challenge for the industry I think and the four-day week is is one solution but with increasing costs and pension costs and lack of yeah. staff it's it's complicated really complicated mm-hmm. one of the other things and you 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 touched on it then with with uh, Generation Z and our sort of big picture kind of perspective, I guess, is around sustainability. And, you know, we're seeing it with plastic in the oceans and we're seeing it around with uh, more sort of vegan diners. How does hospitality have a responsibility in sustainability? And is there any examples you've got, again, of where
1: you've managed to uh, have an impact on that? Well, we, we um, I think, without stating the obvious, we are we are huge consumers, aren't we? I mean, the amount of resources we use. um, the, the food we buy, the food we could waste, you know, and I think wastage is a big thing. Um, and you know, there is so much that goes on in a building of this size, um, the, where inefficiencies can creep in, and and not only be, you know, detrimental to the environment, but to the P&L as well, actually. So, you know, waste alone, I can just think of, you know, our refuse disposal here is enormous, and. You know, things like segregating um, you know, cardboard glass is sort of fairly obvious. But then, you know, wet food waste versus, um, you know, paper product um, versus oil versus you know, light bulbs and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, when, when you first open, you are frankly worried about can you get everything in and can you get everything out? That's it. Um and it's another example of where we've really now had the time to really refine how we do things. We've made a positive impact on our PL. and I feel like I have a sort of slightly better conscience about when I go to bed at night that, you know, we're not doing anything that is overly harmful, should we say. I'm not saying we're, we're saints by any means, but we're certainly, you know, have a very clean conscience. Um, the, the the piece around um, sustainability and hospitality, I think is, I think that's a moving target, actually. And what was once okay, like people saying well, we use free-range chicken. If anyone's still saying they're doing that and are proud of it, I think I think that's just an absolute given. I mean, I think that's scary if, if someone still thinks that's sort of a, a you know at the forefront of innovation. Um, and I think all that sort of stuff is is moving on. You talk about the vegan or the plant-based um, diet um, is becoming more and more important, and people are more and more conscious of what they're eating. Um, and and there's a lot that's that's that, there's a lot that we're doing. But there's a lot that we're observing. where We're not necessarily fully committed at this time. I mean, there's sometimes a fine line between what is a trend um, and a trend that's going to stay versus what might be you know, something that might be a, a a moment in time or a bit of a fad. There I say it. I don't think that is a fad, but I, I think you know uh, I'm not jumping on that bandwagon and, and and in a way that I think underpin sort of undermines what we've done to date. Um, the the green tourism business scheme. Um, is something that we signed up to um and you know they've been really good at helping us to they provided a framework for us to assess ourselves really and say you know what are we doing in this regard or that regard um and you know we have um a silver accreditation and we're actively working towards a gold accreditation this year um we are partnered with a couple of charities who are local and are tied into hospitality so uh, a great example of one that I'm very passionate about is um, is Kitchen Social who um, are a charity set up to provide um, nutrition and um, uh, education um, for children whose parents are either unable um, or incapable of providing them with a hot meal during the school holidays and we donate um, ingredients, but we also donate chefs who go in during the holiday periods, teach young children about cooking and about nutrition, and then at the end of the day, they actually get a nice hot meal, and and that's really important. And it really resonates with a lot of people here, and those schools are often, you know, within boroughs very local to the Ned, so it ticks a sort of another box as well. And and there are more and more charities like that, um, or, or opportunities to engage in in, in activities that are not just the traditional you know donate me um a free night stay please and it'll be raffled for some very good cause at an auction next week and which we do some of that as well of course but we're trying to be a lot more considered in terms of how we support the sort of the agenda that is about sort of sustainability and trying to make the world world a slightly nicer place or or certainly make london a, a better place Perfect. I think you're
0: right. It's a moving target. Uh, and, and you've got to realise, is it just something that the BBC have grabbed all hold of this week and all of a sudden there's a, a, you know, a, a huge amount of noise around it? Or does it genuinely make a difference? Is it, and is it something that we can sustain over a period of time? Um, lastly, you mentioned then about working with uh, schools and you mentioned universities earlier. Is there any, any anything either that you've particularly learned or any bit of advice that you've heard being given regularly, uh, business advice or hospitality advice where you go that's just bloody nonsense. You know, I've been working in this industry all my life. I guarantee you it's not like that. Or, or the flip side, any really good nugget, anything you've been told, any bit of wisdom for anybody thinking of working in this sector or opening a business where you go, yes, that's probably the most important thing you need to succeed.
1: Wow. That, yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, I, I think, um, yeah, I, there's a couple of a couple of things that definitely um, resonate, me. I and mean, I've, I've probably touched on them. So I go back it sort of recap almost um, the idea that, that, that generosity and hospitality are inextricably linked. Um, uh, you know, people talk about the Ned as being sort of brave and ambitious, and maybe um, the principles of great sort of hospitality and hotel keeping haven't changed. You know, warmth of welcome, cleanliness. Um, uh, you know, a full belly and a, and a you know a warm a warm experience. You know that these things, you know, since going back thousands of years, you know these haven't changed. You know the technology's changed and designs changed and facilities and and people's lives have changed. But you know the principles are still the same. And, and I think yeah, that's that. You know and that might not ever change. I think there's definitely a correlation between sort of. Um, the harder you work so the luckier you get in hospitality I think if I look at my top performing people without fail they're all super hard workers and if I look at those that I don't think you know achieve their potential sometimes I think it's, it's what you put in what you get out and I think hospitality will always be tied to I don't want I don't want fatigue to be a badge of honour but there's no getting away from the hard work that, that it takes to be successful um I do say to some of the team here, and particularly those that are non-office based, and we don't have a big back office. Actually, we have most of our resources deployed on the floor, looking after customers and guests and 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 members. And I say, you know, get a really comfy pair of shoes. Um, you know, be kind to your feet; um, they'll be kind to you. Um, that that point I made earlier around, you know, vision is one thing, courage is something else, and you need courage and vision in equal measure to really deliver something special. Um, uh, and probably the one other thing that I sort of I often reflect on is, is you know, um, capital actually isn't always the scar- most the scarcest of resources. I think it's about creativity, um, and I, I, I really I wish I wish you could bottle creativity. Um, but I, I I think about some of the things that we are most proud of here and some of our biggest successes, and it comes from where we've been really creative. And I gave the example of how we we through the kitchen sink at trying to create a Sunday lunch destination. And, and we've done that. Um, uh, and there's lots of other things that the team, that I can take no credit for, by the way, that the team have done. And it's, you know, it's a really creative bunch of people here who um, have allowed us to, you know, Get a bit of a reputation, if you like, um, for for being sort of an interesting place to come and experience. So, so yeah, those would be my sort of three or four sort of sound bites. I no, guess
0: there's, there's some there's
1: some good nuggets in
0: there. I think we're very lucky in this sector that um, there are so many creatives. There's so many people who are musicians or or graphic designers or artists who who end up working in here. Most of my team end up, you know, they carry crayons more than they carry a laptop, and I, yeah. I love that. It's one of the best things about the sector, although I think you, you're the first person that said the key thing you need in hospitality is a comfy pair of shoes, and that's my quote of the day. I
1: think you're right Just start
0: there, isn't it? Yeah, walk comfy. Um, I could talk all day, but we're out of time, you in particular are out of time, so I'm conscious I need to let you go. Where should people go if they want to find out more about The Ned or about
1: you personally? Can they get on online, social media? What's the best place to do it? Yeah, um, I think the best place to do that is to go, if you want to find out a bit more about the business, then it's www.thened.com. Um, Instagram is our primary social channel. There we are on Twitter and Facebook too, um, which is the Ned London. um, And please take a look. Um, There's lots of visual content there, obviously, that give you a sense of what we're about. Um, Or come and see us. We are uh, directly directly above Bank Underground Station. So um, all are welcome, uh, as I said before. Um, There's lots here to see and uh, something for everybody. Okay. And do you know what's next? Last question for you personally. Uh, For me... uh, i got an inkling of what might be next, um, which is um, really to do with expansion of the Ned brand. I think we, we designed this as a one-off and it suddenly found that there's a lot of interest um, and, and, and from investors to do more of these. Um, so we are announcing, or we have announced, I should say, um, a Ned's club. Um, it will not be the full-blown hotel, but it will be a, a, an extension of the club we have here. Um, in Washington DC and we're also looking at other sites now in other sort of major cities um, where we would like to do more Neds and Neds clubs so expansion is definitely on the horizon and uh, as long as we continue to you know hopefully do a good job here and not take our the ball that, that that should be a, a reality
0: you're a sucker for punishment you're going to go and start it all again in another city <laughs> Good luck. Congratulations on what you've done. I think it's brilliant and uh, I love your um, your authenticity and your your kind of, you know, relaxed demeanor. I'm sure behind the scenes there must be some chaotic stuff going on in your head, Plenty. but you're very <laughs> you're very calm and it's a real pleasure to uh, get to spend some time with you. So thank you Gareth. Pleasure, thank you. So there you have it. You have reached the end of another episode of the Humans of Hospitality podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please go and visit our website, humansofhospitality.co.uk, for the show notes and extra episodes and information. And whilst you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter and to receive free materials all about the humans behind our incredible industry. Lastly, if you could subscribe, rate and review this podcast, you will be massively helping me out and it would be hugely appreciated. Thank you so much. We'll be launching another podcast in just seven days time. Cheers.